Blog Talk Radio.
All right, here we go, kids, gather round. A brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for His glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and His name is Jesus. the Bible, where should we begin? When God made the whole wide world just by speaking. By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up the sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve, made in the image of the beautiful most high. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you surely going to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. When we read God's word today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used crafts to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero when his name is Jesus. Well, this morning we're going to return to Ephesians chapter 3, and I will read the opening six verses one more time. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, 
if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And we'll, we'll stop there at this particular point. The mystery that the Apostle Paul is talking about is clearly stated as the fact in verse 6 that Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And we are looking at this and discussing this matter of unity in the church because this is that very subject at its most initial point in the history of the church. The challenge in the church, the initial challenge in the church, the life of the church, was to bring Jews and Gentiles together who for millennia had been violent enemies. The Jews had no interest in the salvation that God offered to the world being given to the Gentiles, as is illustrated by Jonah's attitude. Uh, the Jews and the Gentiles were hostile toward each other. The Gentiles had um, come against Israel on many occasions militarily. They had taken many Jewish lives. They had, in fact, not only come against Israel on their own, but they had been used by God as instruments of punishment of Israel. Israel was punished by God through the weapons and the deadly assaults of the nations surrounding Israel. So for millennia, there was deep and profound hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now the Lord is establishing the church, the new man, the one new man mentioned in chapter 2, as I read, the one body of Christ and Jew and Gentile are united in that one body. That is the mystery of the church. And what do we mean mystery? We saw already that is something hidden, verse 5 says, in the past, and now revealed in His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So when we talk about mystery, we're talking about not something that is to us mysterious, but something that was unknown to those in the Old Testament. Now what was known to them in the Old Testament? That God would save Gentiles? Of course, because God's whole purpose in calling Israel as His nation was that they would become the recipients of His divine revelation and they would take the message of the one true God to the rest of the world. They were always to be a missionary nation. They were a thoroughfare. They were, they were not to take the truth of God and uh, make it their own and demonstrate complete indifference to the nations around them, which is essentially what they did. And not only did they do that, not only did they in some bizarre way harbor the truth of God, but they found themselves drawn into the wretched idolatry of the nations that surrounded them and were idolatrous and unfaithful to the true God. So they were unfaithful to God, and they were certainly unfaithful to take the message of the true God to the nations around them. That was God's purpose for them 
first be faithful and then take the message to the rest of the nations. We know they did not do that, and as the time and the years went by, they become more and more apostate, more and more alienated from God. They have developed a religion that is ungodly, that has no connection to God whatsoever. The rare reality in the time of Christ would be a true Jew who really believed the Old Testament and come by faith to know the true God. That was a very very rare exception in Israel by the time you come to the New Testament era. But the hostility the Jews had to the Gentiles was uh, cumulative because of all the, the battles and all the fights and all the mistreatment that had gone on from Gentiles toward the Jews. The hatred ran deep. Now, the Lord is going to create a new humanity, a new entity, and it's going to be the church. And the church is going to be his, his witness nation in the world. The church is going to live faithfully in the, in the way that Israel did not live. The church is going to be faithful. And the church is going to be a, a missionary agency to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So Israel is set aside, and we'll see a little later, they were set aside partially and temporarily, not totally and permanently, but they were set aside and the church was established on the day of Pentecost, and that's what Paul is writing about. He is saying, we are the new humanity. And if we are going to be the new humanity made up of Jew and Gentile, then Jew and Gentile have to understand that they are one in Christ. Now, unity is always hard. It's always hard. It's hard at any level, on any front, for any reason. And I think particularly in the day in which we live when Individuality is celebrated to a literally paranoid level. When we are sick with the disease of self-absorption, where one's own personal identity is created in a fantasy world of social media and everything revolves around the individual, it's very, very difficult to experience a unity in that kind of environment where people are completely consumed with themselves because unity only happens when you give up yourself in favor of somebody else. When you look not on your own things, but the things of others. When you don't consider yourself more important than others. When you humble yourself. When you love others by setting aside your own will, your own way, your own promotion. So from an individual standpoint, unity is very difficult in this day and age. And I'm talking not, not in the sense of the world. Of course it's difficult there. I'm talking in the church because the church is fraught with all of the diseases and illnesses that come to a group of people who are focused on themselves. That is, the, um, that is really the greatest barrier to unity. So how do you produce in the church of Jesus Christ selfless, humble, loving people who are far more concerned about others than they are themselves who hold no grudges, no bitterness, no respect of persons, no wrong attitudes toward anyone, that is a challenge. And the Spirit of God can do that because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. And those kinds of things are manifest in someone who seeks peace and who pursues unity. But it's very difficult. And you have not only the individuals in this society in which we live, thinking the entire world revolves around them. 
But you also have them collecting into groups that think the world revolves around them. I often have to confront the fact, and I said this a few years ago, social justice would do more to destroy the unity of the church than anything I'd ever seen in my life, and that has proven to be the case. Social justice sounds so benign, it, it sounds so noble, nobody's against uh, society experiencing justice, but social justice is not what you're seeing. Social justice is a deceptive title for what should be called collective envy. Collective envy. If you begin to label things for uh, clarity with biblical terminology, you know how to deal with them. If somebody talks about social justice, you can't find a framework in Scripture to address that at that level. But if you understand what you're seeing in this is collective envy that has not necessarily risen out of the hearts of people, but it's been foisted upon them. It's been sold to them for divisive purposes. It shakes the fist in the face of God and says, God, I don't like my history. I don't like my past. I don't like the things that have gone on in the, my progeny, and I don't like what happened to my people, or I don't like where I am in life. You're shaking your fist in the, in the face of a sovereign God who brought you to where you are by the history that He pre-wrote in eternity past. And uh, it's, it's really a better approach to these kinds of things to see individuals as completely consumed with self-centeredness and then collecting into groups and a kind of collective envy that, that becomes even violent because it turns so readily and so easily and so simply to anger, anger. If you're angry with the past, then you're going to have a hard time trusting God for the future. And where the church needs to be brought together as one, there are many who out of this envy and anger are creating immense division. Paul is dealing with this at its base level, and the toughest thing was at the very beginning. How do you bring together Jews and Gentiles? who have been hostile haters, mutual haters of each other for millennia. That's the issue. Paul has a tremendous responsibility. This is a huge responsibility. Uh, you understand why Paul felt so deeply about this when you recognize that it cost him his freedom. And then it cost him his life. I mean, the whole episode that got him to prison, maybe as many as five years in prison by the time he writes Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon. The whole episode that got him to prison was that the Jews tried to kill him in a mob action in Jerusalem for preaching that Gentiles were acceptable to God. The Romans rescued him from the mob, and again, they were trying to kill him for saying God was bringing Gentiles into this new humanity called the church. That's how disastrous such a thought was to Jewish people and even Jewish believers. It cost him his freedom, and then it cost him his life when an executioner chopped his head off in prison in Rome. Unity is very difficult. 
And particularly difficult when you have generations and generations and generations of hostility. And that is why the only way this unity can be produced is on a supernatural level. So where you don't see it, you know that people are not submitting to the Spirit of God. Look over at chapter 4 for a moment. Verse 3, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How do you do that? Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. It can only be produced by the Holy Spirit. It is a supernatural reality. When you look even now at a church, you look at this church, you, you take a look at this church and you say, what in the world ties these people together? They come from all kinds of backgrounds. Who knows, who knows what happened in your background or back in the history of the nations your ancestors came from? Who knows what hostilities existed then or existed even in more modern times? But all of a sudden, there's this mass of people who've come together from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, and they're one body in Christ, one body by the power of the Holy Spirit, worshiping the one true God and loving each other and serving each other. That is a supernatural work. The great challenge for Paul was not just preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, and that was a challenge, believe me, because he was persecuted by the Gentiles for his message of the gospel. But I think an even greater challenge was getting the Jews and the Gentiles to accept each other, to accept each other in the body of Christ. And the reason I say that is because he deals with it in chapter 2, he deals with it in chapter 3, and then he deals with it in chapter 4. It's as if he just cannot let go of this very difficult issue. Now let's be clear. The Old Testament was very direct in saying Gentiles would be brought to know God, that salvation would come to the Gentiles. I gave you a lot of Scripture on that last time. But listen to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, chapter 1 and verse 11. For from the rising of the sun even to its setting, this is God speaking, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name. That is, there going to be, there's going to be worship of the true God from every place in every nation, and a grain offering that is pure, true worship, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So clear, unmistakable prophecy that God was going to bring the nations into His presence to express true and pure worship. That's the salvation of the nations. And I gave you a lot of texts from Isaiah, Isaiah 60, Isaiah 49, and other texts from Isaiah that speak to that as well. So the Old Testament was very clear that God is going to save the world. He's going to save the nations. And He's been doing that. That was supposed to be, of course, His plan and His purpose, and it was even in the Old Testament, and the Israel people of Israel were to be the, the instrument, the witness nation. They, as you clearly know, were unfaithful and apostate 
the time came when they not only rejected God, not only followed idols, not only hated their neighbors instead of loving them, but they rejected the Messiah. And so on the day of Pentecost, the Lord made a new covenant people, a new humanity, the church, the church of Jesus Christ. And we are now one. And the imagery is a, is a, is a metaphor that's not in the Old Testament. It's the church is called the body of Christ. That, that is the, the, most, uh, the most integrated of all um, metaphors used to speak of people's relationship to each other and to God. In the Old Testament, the people of God are called subjects of a kingdom. Uh, they're even identified as a, as a bride to, to God who is the bridegroom. They're identified as a family. But never is Israel seen as a body. The intimacy and the, uh, the organistic relationships that exist in the church are new in a fresh way. And that is because the Holy Spirit has come in a fullness to bring about this one new man. Now, Jesus, in His prayer in John 17, told us why this was so important, and it's, it's the very reason we exist. Listen to John 17:21. He's praying to the Father, and He says, I pray that they may all be one. Even as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that You sent Me. So what's at stake here? The world believing that God sent Christ. The whole of Christianity rises or falls on the fact that they are one. And down in verse 23, he essentially repeats it, I in them and You in Me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that You sent Me and loved them even as You loved Me. How is the world going to know that the Gospel is true, that God, the God of the Bible is the true and living God, the only God, and that Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world? How is the world going to know that? By the unity of the church. So obviously, this is where Satan attacks. We are not ignorant of his strategies. The church is to be that one new man, something not seen in the Old Testament where Jew and Gentile come together in one body. There were Gentile proselytes in the Old Testament. There were Gentile believers in the Old Testament who came to the true faith because of the influence of the people of Israel, but not identified in one body. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 16, I will build my church. I will build my church. He's talking about something He hasn't done. I will build my church. And the intimacy of this church is also expressed over in the fifth chapter of Ephesians, if you're there. Verse 25, Husband, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Well, the church on earth is a far cry from that. But that is the design of the Lord, and that was the desire of the Lord, that the church would be holy and blameless and would manifest the evidence of the true God and the true Christ and the true Spirit 
by its unity based on love and humility. In John 13:34 and 35, Jesus said, You are to love one another, and by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. This is so basic and so foundational that Paul was given a ministry that was virtually, apart from the power of God, an impossible task to bring these Jews and Gentiles who had been hostile for so long and at a profoundly visceral level of hostility to bring them together. But it had to be at the end of chapter 1 of Ephesians, you see there that Christ is put as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. It's the body of Christ, and Christ fills that body because He fills every believer in that body. This, this is a marvelous reality. And in chapter 4, verse 3 again, we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because there's one body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So our unity is spiritual. We all possess the same eternal life. That part of the prayer of our Lord was answered. Every believer in Christ is a believer in whom Christ lives. And so as Christ lives in all believers, we share that common life. But getting the church to recognize this and conduct themselves in the way that the Lord wanted them was a huge challenge. Huge. Because the, the wall was so high. Back in chapter 2, verse 14, Paul talked about a barrier, a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. It had to be broken down. The Jews even mocked the Gentiles by calling them the uncircumcision, which was a pejorative. The, the Jews celebrated the fact that in verse 12, the Gentiles were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, those who were formerly far off, namely the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He is our peace and He has torn down the middle wall, abolishing the enmity, verse 15, and making one new man, one body, through one spirit, chapter 2, verse 18, so the Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So they are part of the household of God. They're even, they're even part of the temple, the holy temple. Verses 20 to 22, the foundation is the apostles and prophets. Christ is the cornerstone. And the whole building of Jew and Gentile fit together is growing into a holy temple to the Lord, in whom you also are being built together in the dwelling of God in the Spirit. So from the standpoint of spiritual reality, Jew and Gentile in Christ are one with each other. We know this, but I don't know that in all the years that I've been in ministry, there has ever been a moment when there has been what I would call anything approximating unity in the visible church of Jesus Christ. Now, I know there are false churches, there are tares among the wheat, but even let's say the, the churches that are, that are evangelical, that are faithful to the gospel, 
can always find ways to split from other groups or within themselves. There just seems to be such a difficult, difficult mountain to climb to experience the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It takes a tremendous working of the Holy Spirit and it takes a people who are submissive to the Word of God. Because the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and love from a pure heart produces the kind of humility and selflessness that builds unity. But, but Paul isn't as far along with his people as we are after half a century of studying the Word of God. Paul is going to try to bring the Jew and the Gentile together when there has been nothing but animosity, nothing but animosity, and massive cultural differences. Cultural differences by design that totally isolated the Jews purposely so they couldn't easily interact with the Gentiles because they would then be pulled more easily into idolatry. They had so many traditions that even today when we see one of those rare uh, anachronistic Orthodox Jews walking around, he looks like he's from another era or another planet. But that adherence to that would have been similarly completely odd throughout all of their history. So Paul's task is to bring everyone together. Uh, I would love to think that that could be done on a wide scale. I, I, I would love to think that we could do something, maybe I could do something and others could do something to pull it off, but I've learned after half a century that I can only, I can only affect what I can affect by the instruction of the Word of God and the ministry of the Spirit through the Word. And so my cry, the cry of my heart has always been, Lord, make this church united. Pull us together. Let us love each other. Let us be a living testimony that the Father sent the Son. The Gospel is true. Salvation is in Christ. And Christ can transform disparate people into those who are one in every sense. So Paul has made an issue out of this because in the formative time of his life and ministry, this was a very, very challenging task. Now, he wants us to understand it. That's what he says in verse 4. I, I'm saying more because I want you to understand it. Chapter 3 really began with him starting to pray, for this reason I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he just stops. And you have a parenthesis from verse 2 to 13. He picks up the prayer in verse 14 again by saying the same thing. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. It's as if he says, I'm ready to pray that you'll understand this. Oh, I don't think I can do that yet. I have to tell you some more. You don't know enough. You don't know enough. That prayer can't be answered unless you have further revelation. So that's why he unfolds this mystery in these opening 13 verses. Now, we started last time with the first point, the prisoner of the mystery. The prisoner of the mystery. And this is really important. Paul introduces himself, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. In chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord. He is not talking about some spiritual relationship. He is a prisoner. He is in a prison. And uh, as I said, he may have been there as much as five years. And the reason he's in that prison is because the Romans rescued him from a mob of Jews in Jerusalem were going to kill him, murder him on the spot. They took him into protective custody, and then they had him on their hands. They finally take him to prison in Rome, 
And uh, in his imprisonment, he writes this wonderful epistle. So when he says, I am a prisoner, he means, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles because I am preaching Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. This is what has led to my imprisonment. This is how distasteful this was to the Jews that they would have killed me if the Romans hadn't rescued me, put me in protective custody. And once they had me in custody, then all the accusations kept flying. You know all the trials in the book of Acts, Festus, Felix, Agrippa, and all the accusations against him. The Romans don't know what to do with him. They finally take him on a ship to Rome where eventually he loses his life to an axe. But look at Colossians. While he was writing Ephesians, he wrote Colossians in chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. This is the suffering of being in prison. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body. I'm suffering on behalf of his body. Again, he's back to the same idea that it's because of the body of Christ being made up of Jew and Gentile, which is the church, it's because of my ministry to try to bring Jew and Gentile together in the church that I am literally filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. What he means by that is they, they, can't, they can't get to Christ. He's not here, so they're, they're coming after me. They hated Christ. They killed Christ. He ascended. They can't get to Him. So they're coming after me with their animosity, their hatred. But verse 25, however, on behalf of the church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship or the administration. This is the particular task from God bestowed on me for your benefit, the benefit of you Gentiles, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. He says, look, I, I was made a minister according to a divine stewardship that God bestowed on me to bring the message of the Word of God to you Gentiles for your spiritual benefit. Verse 26, again, the same language as in Ephesians. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints. What is the mystery to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory? This is the mystery that is so intolerable to the Jews that Christ would live in the Gentiles and they would have the same hope of glory. So, Paul says, verse 28, we proclaim Him, admonishing every man, Jew or Gentile, teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man, Jew or Gentile, complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. I mean, this is an overwhelming burden on this man. All the hate, all the hostility, all the imprisonment, all the trials, just because he wanted to bring Jew and Gentile together. You would have to think the devil would do anything he could to stop this. Well, yes, since we read from the lips of our Lord Himself that it is by unity that the world knows that the Father sent the Son so, of course, what does the enemy want to do but sow disunity everywhere among those who name the name of Christ? So, Paul, before he can pray, let's pick it up in verse 2, a little more about the prisoner of the mystery. 
If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. Uh, he, he, he reminds them that everybody knew this. Everybody knew that he had been given a stewardship, a, a certain administration, a certain role in the kingdom. And that, that role, by the grace of God given to him, was for the Gentiles. Was for the Gentiles. It was a ministry by grace to take the gospel to the Gentiles when he was on the Damascus Road. You remember, the Lord said to him, you're going to take the message to the Gentiles. This was his calling. And of course, in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, he says it's required of stewards that a man be found faithful. It's the same term. This is my administration. This is my stewardship. And I must be faithful. This was a difficult, difficult task. Uh, people pastoring a church struggle to unify the church. People in a marriage or a friendship struggle to continue unity in a, a relationship. Imagine trying to bring together two disparate groups of people who were hostile toward each other for centuries. But that was Paul's task. That's the stewardship that the Lord had given to him. And it was very challenging. You've heard of it, he says in verse 2, that it was given to me. And verse 3, this is really important, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. As I wrote before in brief, probably referring to chapter 1, verses 9 to 12, where he talks about it. So he's saying, look, this isn't something somebody told me God wanted me to do. This is direct revelation. This is direct revelation. That story of the revelation of the calling of Paul is found in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts, where he's on the road to Damascus and he's interrupted by Christ, and you remember the story. But that, that encounter on the Damascus road, as dramatic as it was, and as saving as it was, wasn't the end of his preparation for this particular stewardship. Turn in your Bible to the first chapter of Galatians and listen to Paul's testimony starting in verse 11. In verse 11 of chapter 1 of Galatians, I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. There is no New Testament. If Paul is going to preach the gospel, then the Lord is going to have to tell him what the gospel is. And the Lord is going to have to give him a direct revelation about that and a direct revelation about his particular responsibility as the apostle to the Gentiles and the one who is supposed to proclaim Jew and Gentile one in the body of Christ. There was nowhere to go to get this message. In fact, it was so alien, it was so difficult a message that no one ever would have imagined it. So he received it through a revelation, verse 12, of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. This is, this is as startling as anything else I've said up to now. He's, the Lord doesn't pick somebody who had had some experience in conciliating Jews and Gentiles. You get that? 
No, he didn't pick somebody who showed he could broker a relationship. He picks a Jew who was killing Gentiles to be the reconciling minister. And in fact, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. He says more about that in Philippians. He was fanatical, pharisaical, fanatical Judaism. And God selects a fanatical Jew who hates Gentile and who is as extreme a legalist as is possible to be the one to preach that Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. Now, how does he convince Paul to do this? It wasn't easy. Verse 15, But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, he knows he was ordained from his mother's womb to this, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Now, why? Well, who would he go to? When he finally does get to Jerusalem a number of years later, they don't like the idea that Gentiles are to be accepted into the body of Christ even then. So who's going to come and be an ally to him? No one, necessarily. So what do you do? He said, I didn't go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. I didn't even go to the apostles because the message would probably not be understandable to them. I went away to Arabia, Nabataean Arabia, east and south from the land of Israel, and returned once more to Damascus. Then, verse 18, three years later I went to Jerusalem. Oh, how long did it take for Paul to get this through his thick skull? Apparently three years before he was going to test drive this in Jerusalem. This is just too extreme. Too extreme. So he's converted. He goes to Arabia. At some point he comes back to Damascus. Three years of divine revelation from Christ to transform this killer of Gentile Christians into one who's the apostle to the Gentiles and has the responsibility to bring Jew and Gentile together in the church. So back to verse 3 of Ephesians 3, By revelation was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. The Lord gave me insight, sunesis. The Lord gave me understanding over all that period of time that the mystery of Christ was to be the message to preach, which in other generations, verse 5, wasn't known. And the ministry of Paul is to preach Christ to the Gentiles and to the Jew and Gentiles that there is one body of Jew and Gentile, one in Christ. Now, that's the prisoner of the mystery. At least let me give you a second point. The planning of the mystery. Verses 5 and 6. The planning of the mystery. And this is pretty evident by now. What is a mystery of Christ? It is that which in other generations 
was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So a mystery is not something that is intended to be obscure or oblique. A mystery, specifically the term mysterion in the New Testament, refers to something hidden in the past and revealed in the New. Other generations it wasn't made known, now it is revealed. And he said it was revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. By the revelation of the Spirit, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All divine revelation comes by the, by the agency of the Holy Spirit. And it came to the apostles. Now, uh, apostles in the sense here, as you would obviously know it, of the twelve minus Judas plus Matthias plus Paul. These are chosen men. And there was a criteria for that choice. Um, listen to 1 Corinthians 9.1. Paul says, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? What was the qualification for an apostle? He had to have seen Christ and seen the risen Christ. And Paul had that experience on the Damascus Road and a couple of other times as well. So this revelation has been revealed to Paul, and not only to Paul, but to the holy apostles as well. The other apostles had come to understand this, but it was Paul's unique responsibility to go to the Gentiles. And the apostles were then to proclaim this. John gives us a wonderful picture of that. 1 John 1, verses 1 to 3. Here's John giving us a kind of a rundown on the apostles' ministry. He's speaking in the plural for himself and the other apostles. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, and touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. The Word of life is Christ. So John says, this is our ministry. What was from the beginning, our first encounters with Christ, what we heard, what we saw, what we looked deeply into, what we touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. And the life, being the life of Christ, was manifested. We have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and manifested to us. So what, what the apostles had was a personal manifestation of the incarnate God in Christ. And then in verse 3, what we've seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So we were with Christ. We knew Christ. That is what defines a true capital A Apostle. Now, the word apostle means a sent one or a messenger. In 2 Corinthians 8.23, it mentions messengers of the church or apostles of the church. That's a small a. Uh, so that word can have a non-technical meaning. But here, and in most cases in the New Testament, when it refers to the apostles, it is referring to the original apostles to whom was given the revelation of God. And particularly in verse 5 when it says it was revealed to His holy apostles. 
setting them apart with the identification as holy, which means to be set apart. Now, what did the early church do when it met? Acts 2.42, the first time the early church was meeting, it says they gave themselves to the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching. They were the spokesmen for God. There was no New Testament yet. God was revealing His New Testament revelation through the apostles and those associated with them. They were the source of new truth. Therefore, they were the source of that which would be considered the mysteries that were now revealed in the New Testament. But it wasn't just to the apostles, but also prophets. And what are the prophets? That would be preachers. Preachers. How do we know that? 1 Corinthians 14.3 says that the prophets speak for edification, exhortation, and consolation. Theirs is not so much a ministry of divine revelation as the apostles, but rather the speaking of edification, exhortation, and consolation. They preach the already revealed truth. Occasionally, the Lord might give special revelation to a prophet on a practical level like Agabus we saw in chapter 21, but there's no indication of prophets receiving divine revelation the way the apostles did. So the prophets preached the apostles' teaching, which they received from the Lord Himself. So John is telling us, so basically coming back behind Paul and uh, bolstering Paul's purpose, we all were called to this. We, we were all called to proclaim Christ. But Paul particularly had this responsibility of bringing Jew and Gentile together. And that's what verse 6 is saying, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel just an incredibly difficult task. They're not um, proselytes like Gentiles were in the Old Testament. They're not uh, strangers. They're not aliens like they were in the Old Testament. They're fellow heirs. That means they're sons. They have the same legal status. They, they share the same spiritual benefits. And they are fellow members, fellow members of the same body. It's not as if there's one body for Jews and one body for Gentiles. There's only one body for both. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12.12. 12. Even as the body is one and yet has many members, that's the human body, and all the members of the body, through, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one Spirit, for the body is not one member but many. Whatever you are, Jew, Greek, bond, free, you're in Christ, you're in one body. So we are fellow heirs, we have the same legal status. We are fellow members, we have the same life status. And fellow partakers of the promise meaning we have the same inheritance. The same inheritance. Which is to say that all the promises of blessing ultimately to Israel are also going to be to the Gentiles who also come under God's blessing through salvation. And I think we know that the Jews didn't want the Gentiles receiving the blessings that were promised to Abraham and David and the prophets. 
They were outside the covenant. But in the church, we all share the same legal status, the same life status, and the same inheritance. We're all one. And this was the hardest unity to get across, the hardest message. You would think if they got it in the early church, and they did eventually, we would figure out the lesser challenges of division that face us in this day. In Romans chapter 11, just kind of wrapping up, in Romans chapter 11, verse 13, Paul says, I am an apostle of Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. I'm an apostle of Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. That is a strange statement, isn't it? Now we know that his zeal was for Israel. It says that in chapter 10, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is their salvation. Even in taking the gospel to the Gentiles, he was hoping to make the Jews jealous of the blessings that God was pouring out on Gentiles. Strange, isn't it, that jealousy could be a motivation for salvation? But it can be if you know you're lacking what someone has in Christ. I would, I would want somehow to move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Will that happen? Over to verse 25. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery of the church. I don't want you to miss this so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Okay, let's stop here. Not all Jews basically were rejected because the church is made up of Gentile and what? And Jews. So the hardening of Israel was only partial and it was only temporary. Hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And when the Lord has completed His church and the fullness of Gentile salvation has come in, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. God is not through with Israel. He's going to go back and save Israel. He is now calling out His church. But His promises to Israel cannot be revoked because the gifts and callings of God are not subject to change. So when the church is complete and the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, the Lord will then turn to the salvation of Israel as He promised. In the future, they will look on the one they've pierced and they will mourn for Him as an only Son, meaning they'll see Christ for who He was and salvation will come to Israel and all Israel will be saved. But at the front end, this was a profoundly difficult ministry. And it cost Paul his life. The price he was willing to pay because his stewardship was given to him by God. For us, the gospel is to create a new society. 
And the last thing that should ever, ever identify us, the last thing that should ever be characteristic of us is disunity, discord, fightings, quarrels, divisions that split Bible studies, Sunday school classes, churches, denominations, institutions. We all need to be pursuing the bond of peace, don't we? In the Spirit, by love and humility. Much more to say. In fact, I said a whole lot of things I hadn't planned to say. Let's pray. Father, it's, it's a profound experience to sit under the Word of Heaven, to sit and open our ears and our minds to hear You speak. We are so weary of men and the messages of demons and deception and the lies. We're so weary of the confusion, the misrepresentation, the false teachers who masquerade as if they represent You. Thank You that Your Word gives a clear truth. At every point, it is unmistakable. It is clear because You hold us responsible for understanding it, believing it, and living it. We have enjoyed in this church wonderful and rare, joyful unity. And we ask that You would continue to cause all of us and each of us to do all that we can to preserve that. That at least the world that looks at us will say that can't be human. And give glory to our Father in Heaven who sent His Son to save us and to make us one in Him. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible Teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.
church compromise in six days. Many Christians claim that God used the Big Bang to create, but there's a lot of problems with that idea, starting with the order of events. Genesis says God created earth first, 
the Big Bang says the sun came first. Genesis says the earth was initially covered with water. The Big Bang says the earth was a hot, molten blob. Genesis says plants came a day before the sun. The Big Bang has the sun coming millions of years before plants. Genesis says earth was initially a paradise. The Big Bang says earth was a molten blob. The Bible and the Big Bang certainly don't agree about the past. Instead of starting with man's ideas about the past, we should start with God's perfect word. Find out more about the Bible, origins, creation, evolution, and other fascinating topics at AnswersRadio.com. You'll find answers to your Bible questions at AnswersRadio.com.
Two different futures. This is Ken Ham inviting your family to visit our massive Noah's Ark in northern Kentucky. Many people don't realize that the Big Bang isn't just a story of the past, but it's also a story of the future. You see, the Big Bang teaches that the universe will expand forever, yet eventually run out of usable energy. According to the story, it'll stay that way forever. This is called heat death, but that's not the future the Bible describes. It says the world will be judged and remade. Paradise will be restored. Many Christians add the Big Bang origins to the Bible, but they ignore the story of the future the Big Bang presents. But why? It's inconsistent. Instead of selectively adopting the world's ideas, we need to start with God's Word. Plan your visit to the full-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter at AnswersRadio.com. Kids 10 and under are free this year, so bring the whole family. Visit us at AnswersRadio.com.
wonderfully made Through each the glory of God display God made me and you For all the value, all our loss All of great need for the cross Jesus died, rose and paid the cost God made me and you Different colors and different shades All fearfully and wonderfully made Through each the glory of God display God made me and you Days, not long ages. This is Ken Ham, author, speaker and blogger on science and the Bible's reliability. Many Christians say that God created with the Big Bang and that the days of creation were long periods of time. Does that match with Genesis? No. You see, the word day can mean different things. But in the Old Testament, whenever it's with a number or the word night or morning or evening, it always means a regular 24-hour day. And all of those are found in Genesis. Exodus chapter 20 says God created everything in six days and rested for a day. That's why we have a seven-day week. Jesus said humans were created at the beginning of creation, not billions of years after the beginning. The Big Bang and millions of years just don't fit with Scripture. The history in God's Word is true. Get answers when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a complete transcript at AnswersRadio.com.
Big problems with the Big Bang. This is Ken Ham, CEO of the Noah's Ark attraction, the Ark Encounter, south of Cincinnati. We've seen this week there's major biblical problems with the Big Bang, but there's also major scientific problems. Here's just one. A monopole is thought to be a massive particle like a magnet, but with just one pole. Now, if the Big Bang really happened, the high temperatures should have created many of these monopoles, and they should have lasted to this day. But we've never found any of these supposed monopoles. Where are they? Well, the missing monopoles say the universe was never that hot. And that's because the Big Bang didn't happen. There's no scientific reason for Christians to ignore God's word and start with man's ideas. Plan your visit to the Ark Encounter with three decks of exhibits, a zoo, and so much more at AnswersRadio.com. Kids 10 and under are free this month. Visit AnswersRadio.com. I have a Bible that I read. I know the truth and I believe. I go to church with my friends. I have a joy that never ends. Not because of anything I've done. There's a reason. It's the only
It's an authority issue. This is Ken Ham inviting you to have an encounter with God's Word at the Ark Encounter. This week, we've seen biblical and scientific reasons to reject the Big Bang. Well, here's one more reason, biblical authority. You see, the Bible is clear on origins. When we adopt the ideas of our day, like the Big Bang, we're making man the authority. To accept the Big Bang, we must reinterpret God's clear word to accommodate man's ideas. Now, when Christians add the Big Bang, evolution, and millions of years into the Bible, they're making man, not God, the authority. It's a compromise with man's ideas. And where do you stop compromising? Instead of compromising on the truth of God's word, we must allow God to be the authority, not man. Discover more answers when you visit AnswersRadio.com and plan your visit to the full-size Noah's Ark, where kids get free admission this month at AnswersRadio.com. We kick it old school. 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 Come on, come on, don't miss the latest craze. Hit it for a minute, then it's on to the next phase. Easy come, easy go, the marketers will hack it. The only change that comes, winds up in.
kick it old school. In 2 Timothy 4.2, the Apostle Paul told Timothy to preach the word. But for how long? Obviously, Paul wanted Timothy to preach the scriptures until his dying day, in season and out of season. But how long should a pastor preach a sermon? According to Pew Research, the median length of most sermons is 37 minutes. Throughout church history, sermons might be shorter to over an hour. The Puritan preachers would preach for hours more. In the Old Testament, the people would listen to preaching that would last all day. The book of the law would be read aloud. That's the book of Deuteronomy, which takes about three hours to read out loud. Nehemiah 8.8 says they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. That would have taken even longer. In the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount is the longest written sermon. Read aloud, it takes about 15 to 20 minutes. In Luke 4, Jesus stood up in the synagogue and read Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That would have taken barely 90 seconds. In Acts 20, Paul preached so long, a young man named Eutychus fell asleep, literally tumbling out a third-story window to his death. But Paul ran down and brought him back to life. Note to some zealous preachers out there, you can't raise the dead. Do not try this at home. So, how long should a sermon be? Let's say anywhere from a minute to before someone dies, when we understand the text. That is what? Known as WWTT, when we understand the text. Uh, And you could see that at www.wtt.com. WWTT dot com and also on YouTube as WWUTT. So check them out please. And next we got this is How to Persuade an Atheist Christianity is Real by Wretched. What other holy book would be as honest as Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said, if this event didn't happen, forget about it. I'm paraphrasing. Of course, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the linchpin miracle in the Bible. Perhaps you're thinking, well, what about the incarnation? When Jesus Christ, God, became Flesh. The problem with saying that's the linchpin miracle is you can't look at a baby and know that the miracle happened. You would say, well, his life testifies that he is God. I would agree to that. But the incarnation cannot really be observed. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ can, and it was. Your entire life, your eternity is riding on this miracle, but we need to do some math. How do we even know about this miracle? Well, there was a book written about it. It's called the Bible, and that means you and I are relying on some eyewitnesses to be telling the truth. How do we know? You'll hear this slanderous accusation when you witness on university campuses. Well, other books get people to believe a lie. There's people who have been charlatans. What about Jim Jones? Valid point. But that is why we need to dig deep into these eyewitness biblical accounts. And what we are going to see is something unique from every other 
myth story. Let's dive in to our eyewitness accounts to see if indeed they are something that can be trusted. From Nathan Abuznitz, the written eyewitness accounts were in circulation much too early to be a myth. This is huge. Why? Because if they had been written much later, all that time people could have concocted stories. But when the eyewitness accounts were written near the event, there are people who could have busted the authors. Hey, he didn't rise from the dead. Everybody in Jerusalem knows that. But our eyewitness accounts were written close enough to the actual events. And guess what? Nobody said, mm, you're fibbing uh, more details on the nearness of the accounts. A myth cannot be developed when people who can refute it are still alive. Number two, many witnesses were still alive when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in about AD 55, give or take. Number three, many witnesses were still alive when Paul wrote Galatians in AD 49, and he certainly talks about Christ rising from the dead. Number four, a myth requires two or more generations to pass before it can take root. And finally, number five, the best scholarship suggests the synoptic gospels were written within 30 years of Calvary. All that to say, the people who wrote these accounts claim to have seen them. Furthermore, the details that are given are so rich. Anytime somebody makes up a myth, uh, yeah, well, you see, um, well, this guy kind of, well, he, he died and then he wasn't dead anymore. And they can be extremely vague. Why? Because you can't get busted. But when you've got a lot of details, that tells the reader, huh, either they are a really intricate liar or this really happened from Nathan Abuznitz. First century fiction was not written in today's style of realistic narrative. There is no mistaking ancient myth with real history because ancient fiction never wasted time on unnecessary details that didn't drive the plot or promote a character's development. Go ahead and read any one of the mythological accounts of some sort of divine human being and they do not have the specificity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in four accounts. That should give you confidence. This is too detailed from individuals who wrote the accounts too near the event for it to be a myth. More from Dr. Buzvitz. Mark 4.38, he cites Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He was in the stern on a cushion. Why the detail? Oh, yeah, because they were there. And they knew the details. Verse number two, that is an example, is John 21, 8. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. Or consider... John 21:11. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Who would know that there were 153 fish? Oh, yeah. 
an eyewitness who is telling the truth, but there is more reliability to the eyewitness accounts. The written eyewitness accounts are too self-debasing and counterproductive to be a myth. Imagine you desire to be rich and famous and to have a lot of followers, and you are willing to write down details of your experiences following a poor Nazarene around Israel, would you describe yourself as a buffoon? And yet that is exactly what we read all throughout the New Testament. Authors of eyewitness events made themselves look foolish because they had actually behaved foolishly. Why would anybody who is desiring to trick people or to have them send in their tithes so that they can receive some sort of tchotchke so that they can fly around on a private jet. Okay, I'm getting my centuries confused, but you get the point. A charlatan tries to make himself look wonderful. The eyewitness accounts you read in the New Testament, they didn't look so stellar. Eight examples of this. Number one, John never mentioning his own name anywhere in his gospel, instead referring to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Trying to get rich, you don't do that. Number two, Peter's courtyard failure at Jesus' trial, where he denied knowing Jesus three times. Number three, the frequent bickering and pettiness among Jesus' closest disciples. They look like the stooges. Number four, Jesus never taking a side on political issues. Five, Jesus asking the Father that he might be spared the cup of his suffering. A tricky detail. Number six, Jesus asking the Father why he had forsaken him. Seven, Jesus being executed as a common criminal. And finally, an appeal to a woman's testimony, which in those days was not admissible in court. All of these details would not be included if it were a lie. That was Todd Frio from Wretched. You can see it on YouTube and also at their website, wretched.org, W-R-E-T-C-H-E.org. They have a radio show and a TV show, so check those out at wretched.org. Thanks for listening here on Truth Be Told Radio, and I want to invite you to get social with us. Well, this is a... A wonderful day for me. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T R U T 
B-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Hello, sorry for the delay. Um, I'm going to go out with Young TFNs and the VR Billy. That's all I got for now. So, bye for now. Yeah.